Welcome to the JMD Podcast. I'm James Nurse, the journal's social media editor and your podcast host. We now have two versions of the podcast, the traditional long-form podcast featuring interviews with the authors where they discuss their work, and if I'm lucky, give me a brief metabolic tutorial. And there's the new shortcast, where authors from JMD Reports briefly summarise their work and encourage you to take a look at the paper. Whatever you're interested in, if it's IMD, it's in the podcast. So have a listen, but not before this latest episode on molybdenum cofactor deficiency. Oh, hello there. I don't think there's any topic that fills me with more dread than this one, because the chance of getting through this episode without mangling the pronunciation of molybdenum are essentially zero. Uh, Thankfully, I have two experts to help me and to explain their work, molybdenum cofactor deficiency in natural history. And they are Associate Professor Ronan Spiegel and Dr. Bernd Schwann. Ronan and Bernd, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, James. Hello. Um, Now, Molybdenum cofactors got a brief mention in our treatment in mitochondrial disease special episode in a wider discussion around sulfite oxidase deficiency. I must confess, I struggled to consistently pronounce molybdenum correctly. So I wonder if you could humor me by briefly explaining what it is that we're even talking about here. So molybdenum cofactor is like the name cofactor, and it serves uh, several enzymes. Perhaps the most important enzyme is sulfite oxidase which is located in the mitochondrial intermembrane space. And this is a dimension of mitochondrial at your introduction. And sulfite oxidase is an important enzyme that then oxidizes sulfite, which is a highly neurotoxic molecule, into sulfate, which is non-neurotoxic. And when you have deficiency of either sulfite oxidase or its cofactor, molybdenum cofactor, it results in um, devastating neurological disease with both seizures and encephalopathy. And there's more than one type of this condition, isn't there? Yes, there are several types, um, three types to be correct. The molybdenum cofactor is synthesized by a metabolic pathway, a very short one, and there are three enzymes that are involved, and each of these enzymes may be defected and deficiency of either enzyme result in molybdenum cofactor deficiency and the types A, B, and C refer to the specific uh, enzyme deficiency in this uh, metabolic pathway. And I suppose what's interesting about this disease is that although it's an ultra rare condition, uh, sort of rarer than rare, there is a a treatment of sorts, isn't that right? Uh, Yes, no, um, molybdenum cofactor deficiency, I will refer to it as MOCD, for the same reasons that we have mentioned before. So MOCD is, we estimate it has a birth prevalence of about one in 300,000, but this can be much higher in certain populations. So it is ultra rare, but it's an important differential diagnosis to consider in neonates that present with intractable seizures and encephalopathy, exactly because there is a treatment available for a subset of children with this MOCD. So since, since 2008, Children with MOCD have been treated with cyclic paranopterin monophosphate. This molecule is, is the first product in the biosynthesis of molybdenum cofactor and is lacking in MOCD type A due to lack in MOCS1. The substitution with CPMP in MOCD type A corrects the biochemical defect and leads to normalization of sulfide and xanthine accumulation. So depending on when the treatment is started, clinical consequences of sulfide accumulation can be completely prevented or at least ameliorated in in these patients. Okay. I mean, obviously, we've done 
podcast on possible new treatments in mitochondrial disease and the challenge of researching the treatments themselves something that's come up is the importance of the natural history study and that's obviously what you've done here what did you set out to do so this was as you mentioned the natural history study and it was a multinational observational study there were two arms a retrospective arm and the prospective arm Retrospective included both diseased and living patients with genetically confirmed MOCD. And we collected both clinical data, radiological, mainly MRI scans and, and genetic and biochemical data. The prospective arm included only living patients and we collected biochemical data mainly esulfocysteine, uric acid, xanthine, both in urine and the plasma. And uh, it was done in a central lab and it gave us uh, highly important uh, information about the biochemical characteristics of uh, the disease. And when you mentioned natural history, this is highly important when we have beneficial, efficacious um, drug, the one that Bernd uh, mentioned, you prefer to do uh, clinical studies with a natural history cohort. And this is instead of doing, let's say, um, double-blind placebo control uh, when you want to, um, to treat all patients instead of, of certain uh, group of them. So um, natural history studies are becoming quite popular in the field of uh, rare and especially ultra-rare diseases. So can I just add to, to Ronan's uh, comments? I think this natural history study is remarkable in, in terms of having a prospective arm, which um, hasn't been done before for sulfidoxidase deficiency or molybdenum cofactor deficiency. Um, there are excellent reviews on, on the topic, and there are case series, and there are retrospective natural history attempts for, for these conditions, but none of them had included any prospective cohort of patients. So I think I'm very grateful that this study actually was sponsored by industry that um, provided the respective framework to allow us to study patients prospectively and to study their biochemistry prospectively, which is quite unusual. So in that regard, I think our study is hopefully a little bit less biased than many of the retrospective case series and retrospective natural history studies that were published before. And I mean, you've mentioned this sort of phenotype of encephalopathy and intractable seizures. How has your work sort of consolidated that picture and did it change the kind of the understanding of the condition or is it? Right. I think molybdenum cofactor deficiency has been known since 1978 uh, when it first was first published. And when you look at the first publication, it contains much of the sort of common knowledge about the severe neonatal presentation of this condition. So most pediatricians will have heard about molybdenum cofactor deficiency and certainly pediatricians working in the field of metabolic diseases will have heard of the classical presentation of neonatal intractable seizures, neonatal encephalopathy, and, and later development of dystonia and cerebral palsy. Of course, our study confirmed that this is the classical presentation of MOCD, but we were able to identify a number of uh, attenuated presentations, milder presentations, as we believe that present in a different way. And that cooperates recent case reports of, of such attenuated cases. And um, I mean, you've mentioned the treatment, I'm sorry to sort of come back to it, but how does the treatment 
um, affect the clinical course? It, 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 uh, what's the, what does it look like for a child on treatment versus off treatment? Our study did not necessarily include treated patients. So we were just looking at the untreated cohort of patients. And um, the question that you have, of course, is extremely important. And I think this work here will be the reference point to compare outcomes of treated patients with untreated patients. In, in terms of treatment for MOCD type A, depending on when treatment is started, you can see a spectacular effect. You can actually ameliorate the disease to an extent that it causes hardly any neurological impairment. This has been shown in, in a few patients, essentially just a handful of patients so far. If treatment is started later, we see a full biochemical correction in, in treated patients, but uh, the clinical sequelae of, of the condition depend on how much previous neurological injury has happened already. Um, I think, again, it is important to tease out the natural history of this condition in terms of the sequence of events from, from birth or even prior to birth, birth and, and postnatal complications and tease out what happens at different stages in order to understand the treatment effects in newborns when we start CPMP treatment at a certain stage of disease. You mentioned um, some attenuated forms that you describe within your paper. How does the attenuated presentation differ? So uh, in our study, we had um, very few um, attenuated patients. But in general, I can say that attenuated uh, phenotype um, usually characterized by late onset and the late onset depends it may be a postneonatal very early meaning within the first year of life but it may be even after the first year of life and the neurological impairment is usually attenuated meaning that patients may be able to gain developmental milestones uh, motor milestones like um, sitting by themselves for more than um, more than a minute, being able to to speak a few words, and in addition, attenuated uh, patients usually have dystonia and basal ganglia involvement. If we go to the MRI scans, and most important is that, um, and this was nicely shown in our um, study, the life expectancy is higher compared with the classical neonatal onset. And in ultra-rare disease or in any inherited metabolic disorder, 58 patients is a huge number to pull together in a paper. What do you think comes next? So, yeah, I think your um, remark is um, interesting in, in, in a number of aspects. Yes, 58 patients with a confirmed diagnosis of malignant cofactor deficiency and a clinical phenotype and a genotype accompanying that. That's actually a very huge collection of, of cases, and I didn't expect to see so many when this project started. On the other hand, I mean, it just reflects the underdiagnosis of this condition. And prior to that work, we, we knew about perhaps 200 patients with MOCD in the published uh, literature. And the fact that 58 patients, or actually 65 suspected patients, could be collected in a relatively short period of time really just reflects that there are many more out, out there who have, of course, not been published or have not been ascertained. And uh, especially when it comes to the atypical presentations, the attenuated ones, late presentations, I think that there is a, there's probably a big negative ascertainment bias in, in that we don't know about these patients unless they undergo extensive genomic screening 
and identified that way because people don't think about mutant cofactor deficiency if they see a patient with dystonia or a Lee-like presentation with some sudden neurological deterioration that um, uh, happens without good reason. So adding adding molybdenum cofactor deficiency to that differential diagnosis, uh, I think, is is going to increase the frequency of of such patients and the prevalence of attenuated cases. So yes, I do expect many more cases. I do expect more case reports uh, of atypical presentations in the in the near future. And do you think the the availability of rapid exome and genome testing within neonatal unit settings for the acutely unwell children, which now is just being rolled out to these undiagnosed um, children and even adults who, who who are awaiting a diagnosis, is that is that what's led to this big expansion in numbers? Yes, I think if you look at the most recent case reports of attenuated cases, those were often diagnosed incidentally by extended genomic screening. Yes. Ronan, is there anything else you wanted to add? Yes, perhaps the, the big message is to know the disease and to have a high index of suspicion, mainly about uh, neonatal seizures, neonatal encephalopathy. It's important to know the disease and it's important to obtain biochemical tests. And this is quite easy. I mean, uric acid, xanthine, sulfocysteine, and if you are able to, to diagnose early, you are able to start treatment early. And um, now that we have an effective treatment, it's important to diagnose early and to start treatment early. And my message is that even if you don't have a definite uh, genetic diagnosis, it's better to start treatment with the cyclic PMP and after you, you obtain the genetic results, you decide whether to, to uh, continue treatment or to stop treatment if it's not either molybdenum cofactor deficiency or not molybdenum cofactor deficiency type A, which is the, the one that is treatable. I think that's such an important message when we've got treatable conditions just to make sure we're you know, looking for them early rather than down the line when more harm may have been done. Well, thank you both your time. I've certainly learned a lot, not least how to pronounce uh, molybdenum properly, although I'm not sure that'll last. If you'd like to read this paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the general web pages and search for molybdenum cofactor deficiency. Or why not download the Wiley online library to take it with you wherever you go. Uh, Ronan and Bernd, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.